Good afternoon. I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'm uh, glad to see all of you here today. My name is Jeff Barrows. I uh, work with uh, Christian Medical Dental Association as well as a few other organizations in fighting human trafficking. Um, you can see the topic of my talk, and I'm going to get right into it because I've been given about 40, 45 minutes to do about an hour talk, so I'm going to talk real fast. Uh, there's a lot to cover. Um, and in the midst of this, I do have some video files that uh, we're hoping to get sound pro projection for. So you may see the guys working up here, but the files are, are a little ways into the presentation. So uh, hopefully we can get that all hooked up before we get to that point. I need to go over some educational objectives, and maybe we can even get these lights off here because I think that's affecting how you can see here. But these are my three educational objectives for you all to realize the extent of the phenomenon of domestic minor sex trafficking here in the United States, be able to identify the signs that a patient or a person that you encounter may be a potential victim of DMST, and then thirdly, to be able to take some concrete steps uh, if you uh, encounter someone that you suspect is a victim of domestic minor sex trafficking. Those are my educational objectives, but I also have one other very critical goal for all of you that I'm going to be up very upfront about. My goal is that when I get done today, that your heart will be gloriously broken over this issue so that when you leave the room, you will not be the same person, just as I was not the same person after the first time I heard about this issue because that's what we need. We need people who don't not only have knowledge about this, but their hearts are broken over the tragedy of domestic sex trafficking. If you've heard me speak before, and some of you I think have, you've heard this story before, and this is a story I use. It is the best story that illustrates the intersection between health care and trafficking. And I wish I could tell you that I made the story up. It's a true story. Jill, that is not her picture. I wouldn't show Jill's picture. But at 14, she ran away from home because she was being physically and sexually abused by her stepfather. And if you stop and think about it, when a girl that age is being abused at home and the mother, for whatever reason, does not step in, she only has one of two choices. She can stay and put up with the nightly abuse and rapes, or she, t she can take her chances on the street. Most girls, after a period of time, decide they're going to take their chances on the street. They end up running away, going to places that are familiar to them, and like many of these girls, Jill ended up at a mall. Unfortunately, there are traffickers that frequent malls looking for these girls. And they've got a whole story worked out. So Jill was approached by Bruce, and if you stop and think about it, once again, it's going to be relatively easy to pick Jill out. She's going to be by herself. She's not going to have any shopping bags. She's going to be there at the mall at the time of closing, loitering around, looking like she's a little lost, waiting for the mall to close down. And Bruce comes up to her and he says, you know, you look like you need a place to stay. I run a business in my basement, and I need some office help, filing, things like that. I'd be more than happy to pay you. You can even live in my home if you want. You can go to school. 
You decide you don't like it, you can leave any time you want. What do you think, Jill? Well, at age 14, when your choice is the street versus this very seemingly nice man who is offering you a place to stay and maybe a way to make some money, what do you think Jill did? She went home with Bruce. Unfortunately, his office, the basement, was actually unfinished. It had rafters, and when Bruce got Jill into his home, he hung her from the rafters, stripped her down, and tortured her until she agreed to work as a prostitute for him. Part of that torture included being hung by the neck so that she had a scar across her neck and permanent damage to her vocal cords. And then Bruce proceeded to sell Jill to his, quote, friends and acquaintances. Also, uh, these customers knew that if they paid extra, they could do very strange things to Jill. Eventually, Jill became pregnant. And then Bruce was faced with a quandary. He knew that as she got further along in the pregnancy, she was going to be less appealing to a lot of the buyers. Yet, on the other hand, he didn't want to take her to an abortion clinic because she might then be able to escape from him. So he attempted to do an abortion in the basement. Didn't do very well. Ended up getting uh, Jill into all kinds of hemorrhaging to the point where she was bleeding to death. And he realized that she was either going to die in his basement or he was going to take a chance and take her to the ER. So he ended up taking her to the emergency room. Well, Bruce, by this time, is unfortunately a very sharp guy. And he had come up with a very credible story. He said, you know what? Jill is my little sister. And two years ago, our parents were killed suddenly in an automobile accident. And ever since that time, my sister has been suffering from schizophrenia. She has all kinds of hallucinations. So I've had to tie her down to keep her from running away. I'm the only person in the world that she's got. Will you help us? Now, the nurses and personnel in the ER bought it hook, line, and sinker. No hesitation about accepting the story. But if you stop and think about it, and that's really all it takes, is a little time to think about what you're seeing in front of you and what the story is. There are a lot of things that don't really match up. For instance, why would you have to strangle your sister? What about the marks on her wrists and her ankles where she's been tied down? And the biggest one is, how'd she get pregnant? But for whatever reason, ER personnel did not investigate, did not go into that any further, um, went ahead and, and admitted her to the hospital. Now, if they had done things the way we would want them to, the first thing they would have done is said, you know, that's great, Bruce. Now listen, let me have a little time with your sister alone. We want to just talk to her and do an exam. And then you begin to question Jill alone and ask her about what's going on. Is this really your brother and, and things like that? You can also get a psych consult. Does she really have schizophrenia? And thirdly, if you've got somebody who is a minor without parents, you need a social service. None of those things were done, fortunately. She was admitted to the ER, uh, taken to surgery, DNC, given blood, had to be in the hospital for about three days, and then discharged from the hospital without any investigation at all. In fact, I am absolutely convinced that the nurses on the floor 
where Jill was at, were convinced that Bruce won. Can you imagine how they would say, you know what, isn't he amazing? He never left her bedside for three days. We tried to get him to go home and get a shower, but he's so committed and devoted to his little sister that he wouldn't leave her bedside. Isn't she so fortunate to have a guy, a brother, like Bruce? She was only freed after three years of captivity when police raided Bruce's apartment looking not for her, but for drugs. And when they raided his apartment, they found her bound and gagged, naked, in a closet. And when they first found her, they had no idea what she had been through and what to do with her. Because they didn't understand trafficking. That is domestic minor sex trafficking. The most common form of trafficking in the United States. Another term I like for it and am beginning to use more, not as technical, is child sex trafficking. Now, where do we get that definition from? We get it from the fact that domestic trafficking is really trafficking of citizens in their own country. Okay? There are other talks at this conference about international trafficking. International trafficking is when someone is taken across an international border and trafficked in a country that they're not a citizen in. But we're going to focus on domestic trafficking. So we're talking about people who are U.S. citizens here and being trafficked. When we talk about minors, we're talking about people under the age of 18. And then, of course, sex trafficking is when they are trafficked for the purposes of commercial sex. Hence the term domestic minor sex trafficking. Okay? Now, this all arises out of federal legislation that was passed in the year 2000 called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the TVPA. And in in that uh, legislation, Congress said that if you're going to prosecute an adult for trafficking another adult, you have to prove one of three things. Either force, fraud, or coercion was used to force that person into, in this instance, commercial sex. But the important thing that I want to focus on is that when we're dealing with minors, they made an exception. Because they said to themselves, wait a minute. Why would we need to prove force, fraud, and coercion when dealing with a minor? Because that means that we're thinking a minor can give consent to commercial sex. Do we really believe, as Congress, that minors can give consent to commercial sex? And after a long debate, they decided, no, we do not. Therefore, there is no need to prove force, fraud, or coercion when dealing with a minor in commercial sex. Automatically, when a minor is found in commercial sex, they are automatically a victim of severe sex trafficking. That's according to federal legislation. And it's a very good legislation. Now, they also, in defining what's commercial sex, they made the definition very broad. The commercial aspect is any time anything of value exchanges hands. So it doesn't have to be just money. A girl, if she is staying in a house of a guy and he says, you know what, you can stay in my home, but you have to have sex with me, he has exchanged something of value, that bed, for that girl, for that night, for sex. That's technically a commercial sex act. Food, also as an example, or obviously drugs. In addition, it's not just prostitution, but it also includes stripping, 
and the production of pornography. And typically, they all occur together. It's not like they're divided out. It's usually happening all together. If you pay the price, you get what you want. I get it later. your heart. The average age, the average age for a girl to get into commercial sex is between 12 and 14. We have found girls as young as 10 in Ohio. We're talking about the level of evil beyond anything I'd ever imagined before I got into this. So, how many young people are we talking about? Well, last year, uh, the president of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Ernie Allen, gave testimony before Congress. And they asked him that question. What is your best estimate of the number of U.S. teenagers involved in this? And he said, our best estimate is at least 100,000. And if that number is wrong, it is low. It may be as high as 300,000 American youth. Where do they come from? I mean, you need to start and think about it. That's a quarter of a million teenagers. Where do they come from? Well, like Jill, they're coming out of abusive homes. Every year, between 1.6 and 2.4 million teenagers run away from home. Now, the vast majority of those runaway episodes are short-lived, 24 to 48 hours. A girl gets in a fight with her mom, and she runs to a friend's house, and she's there a couple of days and gets reported, and then she goes back. But still, when you start out with one and a half million, and you just take away 80% and you leave 20%, you've still got over 300,000 kids. And add to that the 500,000 kids that are in foster care. And you can start to see why we think that 100,000 is a low number. So why is it such a huge problem? Well, the answer is money. The average girl can make between $500 and $1,000 per night. 
in a city like Louisville. $500 to 1000 every single night. We call that the demand side, okay? Because there is unfortunately so much demand of men to buy these girls and young women. The numbers of buyers are just absolutely phenomenal. I don't have a lot of time to get into it. I will talk about recruitment. The, the average scenario is they come out of an abusive home like Jill. They suffer from low self-esteem. They've been told their whole life they're ugly, they're stupid, they're worthless. They go out on the street, they run into a guy who says, hey, you're beautiful. 14 years age, that's going to impact them. Traffickers tend to be of two types. We call a guerrilla trafficker, which really is, in essence, Bruce. They will use a line to get a girl initially into their control, but once they're under their control in that home, they use nothing but brute force to control them. Fortunately, that's the minor type. Most traffickers actually are what we call a finesse trafficker. They use a long three, four-month kind of uh, dating time to get the girl emotionally attached to them. And then over that period of time, they then turn them out. So they'll, they'll start acting like a boyfriend. They'll treat them special. They'll tell them things they've never heard before. Tell them they're beautiful. They're worthwhile. Buy them gifts. Get them involved in a relationship. And then begin to control them. What we have learned is that overwhelmingly, uh, while these kids uh, may leave home voluntarily, may they, while they may be runaways or uh, any, any one of a variety of variations on that theme, um, they are seduced, they are tricked, they are lured uh, into this practice, and then they lose the ability to walk away. And these kids literally become 21st century slaves. It was the things that you said were things that I've never felt before. I was actually felt like I was loved by somebody for the first time. And I put all of my trust and all of my faith in him. And the way that he got me was he told me, let's go for a ride. I got to pick something up in Indianapolis. And he said we were coming back that night. So I drove with him out to Indianapolis. And when we got out there, that's when he told me we weren't going back. So there's a series of stages. After they have the initial kind of dating stage, they'll increase or exert increasing control, wanting to know where she is all the time. A lot of times they'll buy a cell phone, call them wanting to know where they're at. And then eventually they separate them, just like Kelly's story. If they have any support system at all, they will get them away from that support system so that they're completely dependent upon the trafficker and fully under their control. And then eventually they'll seduce them into prostitution, saying, you know what, we need money. I need to pay rent. How about if you just go out this one night, this one time, do this for me. You love me, don't you? And, of course, once she's done it one time, he says, that wasn't all that bad. Why don't you just keep doing it? Look at all the money we made. And all the money goes back to the trafficker. Where does this happen? Well, a year ago, I would have said it was on Craigslist. But now, it's Backpage. I don't know how many of you, how many are familiar with Backpage? How many of you heard of Backpage? Very few. Backpage is similar to Craigslist, only a lot more seedy. 
This is a, uh, a listing of Backpage for here in Louisville. Okay? I took it off the Internet Monday night, and there is a section on Backpage that has escorts. And you'll see all these listings. They're probably not, it's not big enough for you to see from the back. But I counted, uh, the way the listings go, that through the day the listings are added, just like Craigslist. And I did this about 8.30 on Monday night, and by that time there were 60 listings for just Monday here in Louisville. Okay? Now most of them will say that they're for older girls. Like they'll say 20, 20, 21, 19. But if you can see this one, this is one I picked out uh, from the group, has new girl, petite. Those are code words. For guys that are regular buyers of sex, they know that these code words often refer to underage girls. So they will then call that number up, and then they'll go and they'll ask about young girls. You got anybody younger, even though it says 21 on there? They may have not only may this girl be under 18, they will probably know of somebody under 18 that this buyer can go to. So they use these code words to get them in. I don't know, I look for a younger female, you know, a younger female with a backpack or something. Because the first thing I want to think is, okay, she, she's leaving home. She's leaving home for a reason. More than likely, she just had to go to her parents and she decides she wants to run away from home. It really doesn't boil down to money. If she in it for just the money, then, then that's not going to really work out. You see what I'm saying? The girl has to be so love drunk, if you will, off of me to where so she would do anything. I'll make sure she has what she needs, personal hygiene, you know, take her, get her nails done, take her to buy an outfit, you know, spend time with her, you know, take her out to eat, you know, maybe make her feel one, you know, but I don't give her any money. times I've heard that. I get, I get choked up every time I listen to that. Matthew Tompkins, I'm happy to say, was arrested by the FBI finally in 2008. When he was arrested, they investigated his trafficking operation. He had an operation that covered four states. He had 32 women and girls under his control. He had $700,000 in cash. He had eight luxury homes and six luxury cars. His net worth was $2.5 million. He had been ruthlessly trafficking women for almost 20 years. Believe it or not, there is a book you can buy on Amazon that details how to do this. It's called Pimpology, the 48 Laws of the Game. The game is the street slang for prostitution running pimps. Now, if that isn't unbelievable, this book is rated four stars. 
I don't have time to go over some of the rules, but let me tell you, a lot of them I wouldn't be able to put up on the screen. But this is another book, similar, that used to be available on Amazon. They've taken it off, but you can still get this on the Internet. It's called The Pimp Game. And this is a quote. You'll start to dress her, think for her, own her. If you and your victim are sexually active, slow it down. After sex, take her shopping for one item. Hair and or nails is fine. She'll develop a feeling of accomplishment. But after you've broken her spirit, she has no sense of self-value. Now, pimp, put a price tag on the item you have manufactured. That was also rated four stars while it was on Amazon. Talk about some recent cases uh, here. It's all over. It's here in Louisville. It's in every major city with at least 50,000 people or more. Whether you know it or not, it's out there. Two months ago in South Tampa, Florida, Charles Fox was uh, arrested for recruiting young women from bars and restaurants like Hooters and Applebee's, charged with sex trafficking. In Dorchester, Massachusetts, just last month, Norman Barnes was charged with forcing, forcing a 15- and 16-year-old into prostitution. We had a case up in Ohio. I called Lisa, 16, ran away from abusive home, similar to Jill, ran into this woman who's named Perlene Richardson. Perlene said, here, let me, you look like you need a place to stay. Come and stay with me. As soon as she got her in the house, uh, she forced her to, to strip, took nude pictures of her, put them on back page, and started listing her. This is outside of Cleveland in that house. So the neighbors started getting a little suspicious. All these fancy cars are coming and going from the house all day and all night. Eventually she was arrested uh, this last July um, and charged with sex trafficking. Uh, this is a reverse thing I just found. This was just a couple of days ago in Boston. Uh, fortunately, the Boston police uh, put up a, an ad on Backpage and then pretended to be a 15-year-old girl. And within one night, they got three guys, John uh, Caputo at age 63, Daniel Klim at 38, and John Nugent, 24, who were trying to buy her. Probably the biggest, uh, though, uh, cross-country operation is through the FBI. It's, called, it's part of their Innocence Lost Initiative. And they call it Operation Cross Country, where since 2003, they have been doing busts, simultaneous busts, in all of the cities that have FBI task force that are focused on the issue of domestic minor sex trafficking. So uh, I'm actually, it's been a while since they've had one. I'm expecting one any time in the next few weeks. It was about a year ago, they had a bust in 40 cities. And during that bust, they had uh, arrested over 850 individuals. 99 traffickers, 69 children were released, okay? all between 12 and 17. Overall, since 2003, they've released over 1,700 children that have been trafficked. This is only the tip of the iceberg. 1,200 cases are still have been generated, 625 convictions. Unfortunately, only 3.1 million assets have been recovered. These guys are getting smarter on how to to uh, hide their assets. So what's the role of healthcare professionals? I know not all of you are healthcare professionals, but some of you are, and I do want to touch on this. This is a study I often talk about in that they, they took, this is a small study, and they had adult women that were being trafficked from Eastern Europe into the United Kingdom, and then they were free in the UK, and they were taken to a particular shelter, and when they were at this shelter, they interviewed the women. 
And one of the questions they asked was, how many of you encountered some type of healthcare professional while you were in the trafficking scenario? And 28% said they had. But none of them had been freed as a result of that encounter. And the reason was that the healthcare professional had no idea about trafficking or was unable to recognize it. And we really know that there are three major sectors of our society that, in general, are going to be likely to encounter victims of trafficking. Law enforcement, health care, ironically clergy. And I would add to that, if we're dealing with domestic minors, education. This is a study that was done in uh, Los Angeles um, back in 2007 where they decided to survey personnel working in two different emergency departments about their knowledge and experience with trafficking. And it starts out pretty good. A little over three-quarters knew what trafficking was, which in 2007 I consider very good. Um, And almost a third thought it was a problem in their emergency department population. But then it starts going downhill because less than one in four were confident in their ability to treat a TIP, trafficking in persons victim, 6%, believe it or not, 6% had knowingly treated a trafficking victim. But because they didn't know what to do with them, they sent them out the door. 13%, only 13% felt confident or very confident they could identify a trafficking victim. And less than 3% had ever had any training. That's the, the core crux issue. So what are some general identifiers then of domestic minors. The other session will deal with international trafficking. I'm focusing on domestic minors. And really, as you look down this list, now that you understand what's happening, a lot of it is just kind of common sense. Because I think the most important thing to recognizing victims of trafficking is to create a category in your mind that this is actually happening. And it's happening all around us. So then when you see somebody who has a lot of different hotel room keys... Makes sense. It's a girl that's still kind of in and out of school, getting a lot of numerous absences, fake IDs that show that they're older than they really are. They're dating a much older, abusive, or controlling man. Fits in the picture. If you didn't understand or have a category for this, this would be kind of puzzling. You'd look at that and say, that's strange, doesn't feel right, but you wouldn't know that it's leading you to trafficking. Obviously, somebody who in the past hasn't had a lot of money to buy fancy clothes. I talk to teachers all the time. If you know that you have a student that's kind of been in and out right on the edge, came from a very meager background, all of a sudden she's showing up with brand new clothing, jewelry, and a cell phone, that first thing you ought to think about is she's selling something to get all that money. Disappearing for blocks of time, restricted communication. In other words, she's talking, but you feel like she's not giving you the whole story holding back or afraid to talk. A big one is lack of knowledge about a given community or location. That's especially in healthcare. That has to do with the fact that once these girls are fully in the trafficking scenario, they are moved around on a very regular basis. Typically what they will do is bring them to a city like Louisville, keep them a couple of weeks, sell them on Backpage, and then Monday morning, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning after they've worked all Sunday night, they'll put them in a car and they'll take them somewhere else. So the girl will go, go to sleep in the back of the car, wake up, and she's in a different city, maybe a different state, and she doesn't know where she is. And after a period of time, she stops asking because she doesn't really care. 
So they're not going to really know where they're at. They got cell phones that are not paid for by parents. Inability or fear to make eye contact. That's the shame that they encounter and have to deal with. Even though they're being trafficked, there's a tremendous amount of shame of what they're doing. And the other things are also common sense. Somebody else that's with them that seems controlling, answering all the questions, especially in a healthcare setting. I always hated that. When I had a man and a woman together, I'm a gynecologist, and I was talking to the woman, and it was the man that answered all the questions. Typically, I'd say, listen, I need her to answer the questions. They're for her. But we need to go beyond that. We need to say, wait a minute, why is this guy here in the first place answering all the questions? Could this be a trafficking scenario? Um, do you see any signs of physical abuse? And again, how does the patient's demeanor or person's demeanor, are they submissive or fearful? So what do you do? Well, one thing that I tell audiences on a regular basis is do not assume, especially with local law enforcement, that they understand trafficking. I will say that now in 2011 that almost all federal law enforcement officials like FBI or ICE have been trained on trafficking. That wasn't so five years ago, but now that's pretty true. I know that in Ohio, in terms of state law enforcement, they've also been trained, like Highway Patrol. I don't know if that's the case here in Kentucky. It, we just got all of our Highway Patrol trained in Ohio this last year. But what I do know is that when you get down to local law enforcement, a lot of local sheriffs, local police, more than likely, they are not trained on trafficking. So don't assume that you, if you're in a healthcare setting and you think you've got a, a trafficking situation going on, you call the police, your local police, and say, I've got a trafficking problem. I need somebody to come out right now. They aren't going to have a clue or may not have a clue of what you're talking about. So what you have to do is assume that you don't have somebody and begin to research it ahead of time. The best way to do that is to use this 1-800 number, which is run by the Polaris Project in Washington, D.C. They have a database of all of the trafficking providers all across the country. Memorize the number. It's very easy to memorize. 888-3737-888. Call that number and ask them. Give them your location. Say, who is your, in your database and the closest uh, provider to where I am? Then you want to call that provider and talk to them ahead of time before you've got the person in your office or whatever situation because you need to know how do they want to handle the situation. What's their law enforcement official that they trust? How do they want to be called and that type of thing? So you need to do that proactively rather than waiting until you're in the middle of the situation because it isn't going to go well. I do want to finish up by talking a little bit about Grace Haven. Uh, Grace Haven, I started uh, in 2008. If you stop and you ask the question, if we have 100,000 girls in the United States, at a minimum, that are currently being trafficked, how many shelter beds are there for those girls that specifically are geared toward trafficking victims? In 2007, there were 45. I'm happy to say that in 2011, it's... A little more than double. Now we got over 100. So we have roughly one bed for every, or every thousand victims out there. In Ohio, where I'm at, uh, the closest shelter is in Atlanta. There is no shelter here in Kentucky. I know of a couple of groups that are trying to get one started. 
So a group of people and I got together in 2008 to start Grace Haven. And our focus is to create a rehabilitative home for girls under age 18 that are victims of domestic minor sex trafficking. We purchased the house in 2009. We spent the last pretty much two years renovating it. Uh, it's 4,500 square foot, sits on nine and a half acres. We now have five bedrooms, a classroom. This is the classroom that you can see here, finished up with bright colors and an exercise room. Uh, we've got a big room there to, for group therapy. Uh, we're, gonna, we're creating a facility for long-term comprehensive rehabilitation for these, for these girls where they'll get counseling, they'll be able to work toward an education, they'll be mentored, life skills training, vocational training, and all uh, in the setting of a Christian organization. Our location is undisclosed outside of Columbus. Uh, that's our kitchen. Basically, brand-new kitchen, uh, brand-new countertop, all-new appliances. We'll have up to 10 girls at a time. Uh, once we open, we had uh, the Seroptimus. I don't know if you're familiar with the Seroptimus. They helped us decorate the five bedrooms. We have a pink, lavender, blue, yellow, and green bedroom, each with two beds, uh, so we can hold 10 girls. And our goal, once we get the first home open, is to create other homes around Ohio. We estimate that we need at least 100 beds in Ohio for these girls, because we have at least 1,100 girls in Ohio that are being trafficked. Our mission is to find and free underage girls entrapped by child sex trafficking, and we're also training those that encounter these girls to recognize them and reaching out to at-risk youth, uh, such as those that are in the... Right now, most of these girls are actually in uh, juvenile detention, are, are on, arrested. Uh, so that's where most of them are. Or they might be in a facility that doesn't, is not aware of their trafficking background and thus unable to really deal with it in terms of a counseling scenario. So I do have a few brochures up front here. I ended up looking at my house and not having a bunch and realizing I don't have enough, but there are probably 50, 75, and then that's our website, gracehavenhouse.org. So with that, I believe I have four to five minutes for questions. Yes. I'm going to repeat the question for the tape. Um, the question is that when the girls are in juvenile detention, is it an option given to them to go to a rehabilitative home such as what we've got versus foster care? And I would say not at this time because the vast majority of, of law enforcement running juvenile detention centers look at these girls as criminals, not as victims. Number one. Number two, with only a handful of shelters around the country, it isn't an option for the vast majority of them. Number three, they're not given too much option uh, in terms of what their placement is going to be. It's going to be, if they're wards of the state, it will be up to the juvenile judge and the children's service agencies and caseworkers that they're working through. Follow-up to the question is, how do the juvenile judges become aware of uh, this issue, and do the 
girls have an advocate and how do they become aware of us. Um, that's a very important issue, and that's one of the things we're actually doing right now. Um, we have on our staff Teresa Flores. Some of you may be familiar with her. She actually is a victim herself, and she's written a book called The Slave Across the Street. And uh, her role right now is to go across the state of Ohio meeting with the various juvenile justice systems to educate juvenile judges. Ironically, if you get a big city like Columbus, the juvenile judges don't see these girls. It's the magistrates. It's a level below. In the larger cities, the juvenile judges are seeing felony-level crimes only. Well, uh, loitering and prostitution in the vast majority of cities is a misdemeanor. So they're seen by the magistrates. So we're in the process of educating them on trafficking, of the fact that we're out there and beginning to advocate for them. The other thing we need to do in Ohio is also change the laws so that when someone picks up a 15-year-old that's in prostitution, they have an alternative rather than taking them to juvenile detention and treating them as a criminal, they treat them as a victim. But that's, that's the need for a law change. And there's only a handful of states right now that have that kind of law in place. Illinois, New York, California, and perhaps Oregon, I think may be one of the newer ones. Yes? If you identify a victim of, of trafficking in your office, how do you go about protecting that girl and, and removing that individual from the room and the scene, et cetera, et cetera? How do you go about doing that? The question is, if you identify a victim of trafficking in the office, how do you go about separating the the victim from the trafficker and protecting them? That's excellent questions. That's an assessment that needs to be done at that time. And part of that relates to doing the research ahead of time, knowing how soon you can get law enforcement to your office. And, uh, and one thing that I didn't talk about because I didn't have time, but the first thing you want to do is you need to get permission from the victim to intervene. Because if you're unsuccessful, the victim is going to suffer. And they're going to suffer mightily. So you do not want to do, any, do anything without their permission. And I feel even with a minor, you need to do that. Even though we are mandatory reporters and that we need to report that to children's services and police once they leave. And so that's an assessment you have to make on site on the basis of how quickly law enforcement is going to come, how big a staff do you have, do you have anybody, are you in a hospital where you can get security down there? All of those things really need to be kind of come into play. And I think that's, whole, that's a whole real training really at that time. But I hope that, that kind of gives you a little bit of an answer. Sure. Where would you go to get training? Um, well, there are what we call rescue and restore coalitions all over the country. Um, and rescue and restore was an initiative started by Health and Human Services back in 2006. The purpose of that was to raise awareness of this issue all around the country. And what they did is they went to major cities and they tried to, to start a uh, ground support system where organizations in that city would then become involved into trafficking. So that 1-800 number will give you the local Rescue and Restore Coalition, and you go to them, and if they're doing their job the way they ought to be, they're going to be doing trainings like this. Yes? Uh, the question is, is it a problem for boys? Yes, it is. We estimate that 20% uh, of the kids that are out there are boys, 80% uh, are girls. There is no uh, shelter at all for, for boys at all, um, and I often get asked, why don't we focus on that? 
the limited research that's out there shows us that the boys are doing better. They're less often under the control of a trafficker and more able to work as an independent agent. They're surviving by selling sex on the street, and therefore they're, they're exposed to less trauma. And so that's why, even though I believe they need help, the girls need more help. Yes. They were, they were making the boys pay? They were pay? allowing the boys. Well, allowing the boys to conjugal visits. But then after the baby was born, what were they doing with the boys making well, them pay? They from the state to pay for the child right. to be living in the house. And then they charge this boy paternity because he's the father. They, you know, oh, you're the dad. Congratulations. Let's do a genetic test. They're First thing I would do, and I think Kentucky has a law against trafficking, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we in Ohio only got a law against trafficking this past year. Let me repeat the question. The question is, is there certain types of legislation that, that states ought to be looking at? And, uh, again, first is to make sure you have trafficking. In terms of children, um, I would make sure that there is a, a, a law or a window in the law that allows Law enforcement, when a minor is found in commercial sex, be it stripping, pornography, or prostitution, that allows that child to go to a special family court and treat it as a victim rather than a criminal. Most states do not allow that. They, they just go right to a criminal court. Uh, New York passed a year ago Safe Harbor Law, which is a, an excellent piece of legislation and I think a model legislation that we're going to try and also do in Ohio. Um, I would say there are only a handful of states that have that right now. So that would be an excellent place to start. And it's not, I mean, the, the reason that the states don't have this law is because 
they haven't been realizing that this is such a common issue, that there wasn't a need for it. So that's, that's the reason. I, and one other thing that I would add, which gets into uh, runaways. I'm trying to do an outreach to runaways. Dealing with chronic runaways uh, as either part of a nonprofit organization or even as a physician, I'm a mandated reporter. Well, you've got a, a girl that's been on the street for three months. She's been through the system. In other words, every time she's reported, she goes to Children's Services. Children's Services puts her back into the abusive home, and there she is again. So she gets to a point where she's run around the system enough that the last thing she wants to do is go near anybody who's going to be a mandated reporter. But I have no way legally now that I can interface with these chronic runaways. So there's no way that I can help them. That's another area of law change that I want to see in Ohio. Yes? Uh, I'm not sure. Your, your, your question is, how do you get the training to be the staff in, in a home? Yeah. Well, we, we will be doing the, the training. We'll have a two-week training before we even open, and any time we have a new staff person that comes on board, they'll go through an extensive training on trauma, its infect, effect on people, on trafficking, various things like that. So that's a good point. But people that are working in homes like Grace Haven and a few around the country – they should be getting that training by that shelter itself. I mean, in terms of you were asking what's the best background to come into, we're going to be looking uh, at a background with a college education, either social work or psychology. In the back, yes. And I know, I, I'll just say that I know it's later. If you want to leave, that's fine. I'm happy to stay around and answer questions until everybody's done. Yes. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head on some of the tough issues. Um, the question relates to the fact that international kids coming out of trafficking or any trauma, they're going to be acting out a lot, they're going to be uh, aggressive, fighting a lot of anger issues. And ideally, if I had an unlimited amount of money, I would create a home with private bedrooms. Um, I live in the real world. Uh, there's no way I could justify the expense we're spending on Grace Haven for five girls. Um, and uh, how to deal with it? Well, first of all, we're going to have three requirements coming into Gracehaven. Number one, the girl needs to be under age 18. Number two, needs to have a background in trafficking. Number three, have a desire to come out. We're not going to be a lockdown facility. So we'll be interviewing them, and, and they'll be admitted on the basis of that interview, frankly, because I want to create a rehabilitative environment, and I only want girls that really want to get better. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to act out and they're not going to be triggered and not have anger issues. So we've created space for them to go get rid of their anger issues. And when, when they get admitted to Grace Haven, we're going to be talking. That's going to be one of the first things. How do you deal with all the anger and frustration that's in there without harming your roommate and that type of thing? Yes. Yeah. 
It does. And one of the issues that I'm dealing with is how do I get uh, one roommate not acting out with another? Um, and what I'm planning on doing now is, uh, ideally, if, again, if I had all the money in the world, I would put in an infrared camera in all the bedrooms. So all I need to see is red blobs, and I know that if I got two red blobs on opposite ends of the room, I'm fine. They're on top of each other. There's some issues there. Um, but they cost $5,000 a piece. And ironically, a high-definition camera costs $150. So here's, here's the solution that we've come up with. We're going to try we're going to take and buy a high-definition camera for the room, but we're going to put wax paper over the lens that's going to blur it so badly that we can't really see what's happening. And allow the girl to look at the camera and have a roommate so she can see what we can and cannot see. Uh, so we're going to blur it to the point where you're just able to see where bodies are and not, not have any privacy issues. Otherwise, throughout the rest of the house, the public areas, we've got those all covered with video cameras. Yes. Excellent question. What's the prognosis of girls coming out of trafficking? And uh, because there's so little uh, that's been done for them, I don't have good data on that. I mean, I can. There's a home out in Los Angeles called Children of the Night that's been around for 30 years. Um, but uh, Lois Lee, who started, hasn't done a real good job of keeping track of all that data, and she's not faith-based either. Um, but she says that, uh, if she, depending on how you define success, 60% of the girls have graduated from her system and not gone back into trafficking. Um, Wellspring for Girls down in Atlanta has at least a 50 to 60% success rate, which I think is astounding given the amount of trauma that these girls have had. Yes. Yes, I know Mercy very well. The question is, what's the response of uh, uh, law enforcement to Backpage? You've hit the nail on the head. Uh, the, the problem is manpower. In Columbus, uh, we have a, a city population of around a million, and if you count all the, the surrounding suburbs and, and smaller areas, it's about two million. And for a city of two million, we have two vice officers. Um, that's a problem. And the reason historically has been that police departments 25 years ago began to shift a lot of their, their efforts and manpower to drug trafficking ignoring prostitution, looking at prostitution as just kind of a pain in the butt. Nothing to really want to deal with. They wanted to focus on drug trafficking. So now we have to turn that back around and say to them, drug trafficking and sex trafficking are tied in together. You go after the sex traffickers, you're going to impact the drug traffickers, but that takes a lot of time. So it is a manpower issue. Thank you all very much, and I'll stay up for a little bit for questions.